Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. Stand for Something. It's the title of a new book from one of our guests on today's podcast. It's a mantra that many of us utter on a daily basis. And it's an idea that seems so much more present in today's divisive and polarizing world. The more that I've reflected on that phrase, the more I realize that I enjoy being around people who do stand for something. It's probably why I love working so closely with entrepreneurs. To me, each and every one of them stands for something and has little trouble communicating it whether verbally or through their products and services. Today, we have two such entrepreneurs joining us. Our first guest is Joe Rice, co-founder and managing director at Acclivity, a digital transformation company that specializes in moving legacy contact centers to cloud-connected omni-channel solutions. Joe and his team graduated from the Junto Institute in 2017. And since the time I've met him, I've been inspired by his desire to learn his gentle nature, and his humility. In fact, you'll hear him talk extensively in our conversation about being a people pleaser and how that has both helped him and perhaps hurt him at times. Joe also discusses overestimating his capacity as an entrepreneur and is open about the love and appreciation he has for his growing family. Joe's a smart business person, but an even better human being. He's one of those types who I know is going to put a dent in the universe by doing things that make a difference and positively impact other people. So we're kicking things off here with uh, Joe Rice, co-founder of Acclivity. Welcome, Joe. Good morning. And uh, I'm thrilled to have you here. Happy to be here as well. So uh, as you know, we start things at Junto with our emotion wheel and uh, would love to hear how you're feeling right now. Yeah, um, it's a, coming off the long Fourth of July weekend. Um, definitely content. I uh, had a lot of family time um, and just a lot of downtime. Felt like a, a almost a week long vacation, but also optimistic. You know, I think um, as I mentioned to you earlier, I've got a two month old at, at home, and you know, time with with her and swimming with Will this summer, and uh, kind of the amount of family time we've got booked uh, should be good. Looking forward to the summer. Nice. Congratulations on the addition to the Thank family. you. Thank That's you. That's exciting. I am feeling agitated, satisfied, and proud. Three very different emotions, obviously, and uh, three very different reasons, uh, which we won't go into. But um, yeah, I haven't felt agitated in a long time. So just feeling agitated makes me a little bit agitated as well. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we're going to kick things off with our standard opening question, which is, what's your first recollection of leadership? So when I think about kind of, I would say the proactive or kind of forceful memories of leadership, it all revolves around sports for me growing up, Um, you know, between Little League, uh, AU basketball and and kind of football. And uh, when I was in high school, all had very strong presence of coaches that were strict, high expectations. Um, to a certain extent, I would say ruled in fear, but in a discipline, it was it was great for me at the time. And so that's like when I think about kind of what that's what it was to me when I was younger. Um, it's an interesting perspective as you get older, and at least for me, I appreciate my parents more and more. Um, 
my dad was also a, a, a coach. I uh, founded the the uh, youth football program in in Rochelle and had coached my brother um, thirty years before I was. Uh, or yeah, I, yeah. The twenty. My brother's twenty seven years older than me, so he was that same type of coach, disciplined. You know, high expectations. And so it was interesting as I went through sports. He didn't put any of that on me. Uh, and so like looking back, his leadership, he had great leadership, which was sit back and let me have my own experiences and kind of learn on my own, which like I said, that wasn't something that seemed, I, I wasn't aware of that presence of leadership, but it was also a huge impact on me as I've gotten older. So it's uh, very cool to see, uh, just to think back on like the amount of restraint that he probably had to have <laughs> right. to not be hyper involved, you know, like he once was. Uh, and it, for me, it was that's pretty much my only interest when I was little is sports and just playing all you know I was out all the time. So. Yeah, Joe, you and your business partner Ryan Young enrolled in Junto's program uh, for the company Acclivity, but you also seemed to have this deep personal drive to go through the program for your own growth and development. What was behind that drive? Yeah, yeah. So um, Dave Dyson uh, from Eclipse, uh, I think it was Junto one had uh, told me actually before I had met you about about the program, at least at the highest level. And his, I think the two things he said were changed my life forever and made me a dramatically better person, which is pretty pretty good, high compliment. And two was that I thought that Raman was going to ask me for 10 times as much money after I finished the program because I got that much value out of it. <laughs> so that was, that was, you know, pretty, pretty ringing endorsements. Um, I, I think as we learn more about the program, for me, relationships and connections um, are really important. And it was really clear as we got to know you and the other people involved in the program that, you know, the, the tribe and the people that were involved were really good people. Um, and that that was personally motivating to, to be a part of that. I also historically just learned a lot about myself through others. Um, I like the classroom concept and hearing others speak about their experiences and kind of filtering that through uh, and reflecting on that and how I learn about myself. And so that that format was also uh, you know, personally really appealing to me. I also, um, well, yeah, when I had met you and we talked about engaging in the program, we decided for for one year not to, to go through the program. And um, I think it was the right decision at the time. But I, I did have interest in between Ryan and I, my, my co-founder, and Lee, uh, who's on our leadership team and our first employee, to have a better kind of language or understanding of kind of what we all defined as healthy leadership. And not that, I guess I kind of had the expectation that everyone would conform to what we learned, which isn't true, but it it was a really good foundation platform for us to learn a lot about each other and kind of what each other wanted and uh, certainly about myself as well. Talk more about healthy leadership. How do you define that? Well, empowerment is a word that comes to mind when it comes to healthy leadership. Um, and, And I think that you know, means a few uh, different things to different people. For for me, it's about finding that middle ground of where the company's heading and being clear on that that vision, and also helping people succeed and be empowered on their terms. And that that's a really tough you know formula to solve that changes every single day. Um, as obviously employees and what they want out of their careers change from week to week and month to month and year to year. And the same goes about, you know, as founders, what we want for the business and what, you know, what the goals for the business are. And so, yeah, finding that kind of intersection, I enjoy it, but it's certainly not something that is, I think, 
ever, yeah, it's just never done, right? It's just a constant uh, search of finding that right balance. And as the world around us changes, figuring out how to adjust as well. Uh, so Joe, this is uh, the first company you've started, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. What have you learned about yourself through the experience so far? You know, just general self-awareness on what is important to me, what my priorities, what my personal kind of mission, vision, values are, you know, and that's, I would say up until now, I've I've been comfortable accommodating others. Uh, and that's, you know, that as a leader of a company is often necessary in cer- certain circumstances, but you're not clear on who you are and who you want to be and what you stand for. That's also, you know, it's got the, the flip side of that. Also, this concept, and I don't really know how to articulate it of, you know, the lack of confidence or insecurity in yourself that creates drive and a ton of energy and effort and success. And I think that's true of a lot of entrepreneurs. And then also the confidence to kind of sit back and know what to care about and what not to. Uh, I've learned a, a ton about that, but that's still something that is an interesting dynamic, you know, when it comes to just self-assuredness in what you're doing, not only to your employees, but in our case, to our clients. And and we work with vendors uh, quite a bit. What that right mix of like drive resilience, kind of, you know, pushing people to do exactly what you want versus, which is, you know, in our case, a lot of, a lot of times required to go lead a project but then also be able to say, let others kind of fight out the smaller battles, uh, you know, when it's needed. And that's, yeah, that's something I, I think I'm on a continual journey to, to figuring out what that right mix is. Okay, Joe, I want to um, dive deeper into this people pleasing thing because uh, a, I have uh, some people in my life who are people pleasers, as I imagine everyone does, and I am therefore believe that there's a number of people out there listening who. Um, if they're not people pleasers, they too are around them. Um, would love for you to share with us when you started discovering this part of your personality of being a people pleaser, how it started to come to your consciousness, and then most importantly, what have you been learning with respect to where it comes from, and then how you're also mitigating that as you're continuing to build relationships? It's funny you ask because it was the day after the Junto program ended for us and you and I had lunch and you said, well, yeah, you're a people pleaser. And I said, no, nah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and so, I I mean, I literally went through the entire Junto program without thinking of that as a, of, of the wrong, the bad side of that, right? Um, or the, the side that at least can be, you know, negative to how I feel. Um, and so, that was actually the kind of the first moment that someone that I knew who understood me was just kind of blunt in that way. And so one of the other things I've found out about myself on the optimal being program is uh, they call it the denial of truth challenge, which is when something's happening, like I, for me historically have said, yeah, I like, I kind of see it there, but I don't feel like I can solve it right now. So I'm just going to ignore it. (laughs) And so it's one of the things as I've, been basically that you saying that I'm a people pleaser, that was a perfect example. I was like, uh, okay, maybe. So when I would often get into the, the point where I would project what I want to others by kind of proactively pleasing them. So being super patient, giving maybe 
more letting them encroach on my boundaries because I just want them to be happy like I am. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that's how they're happy at all, right? Or that doesn't mean that they want that out of a relationship. And, you know, I think um, in some cases uh, w- with Ryan, he would have respected and appreciated me digging my heels in more on big decisions, right? Or having a clear point of view with him as opposed to sometimes being, you know, subservient or uh, allowing him to, you know, feel the way he is in that moment because it just seemed easier that way, right? And so understanding that not everyone else, obviously this seems very basic when you say it, and others are going to be happy on their own terms at all times. And in a lot of ways, if I understand people, I've been able to, you know, build relationships that way. But it definitely for me has created scenarios where I feel like I'm giving and giving and giving in relationships and I'm not receiving. And if their perception is that I'm not giving, because that's not how what they want, and it c- creates this kind of circle of, you know, resentment and also rejection for me because I'm trying to go build a relationship and do what I want on my terms and it's not being by not being returned. And so that cycle of, you know, and then, you know, as a people pleaser, I won't proactively speak up and tell them that I'm feeling resentment (laughs) because I want to avoid conflict in that way. And so, you know, I think for me is, is clear that, you know, it's just out of a lack of confidence in myself and feeling that my confidence or self-worth is tied to an individual relationship, uh, which like I said, naturally that's, that's, I, I get a lot of fulfillment out of that. That doesn't mean ever I need to have that with everyone or others want that either. So. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm not going to let you off the hook just yet with this because this to me is fascinating. Can you think of a specific example recently of where you were able to manage this where you didn't succumb to pleasing someone? Um, Another one of the the kind of tools or things to think about from the optimal being program is treating others as if they are optimal beings or they're capable of handling your point of view, right? And if my point of view is in conflict with someone else's and it's not emotional, then that's just an easier way to communicate. (laughs) And if they don't like it, that's okay. But I shouldn't put this expectation on that interaction that it's going to result in a negative outcome. And that's what I've, you know, continually do that a lot. I would say just scheduling things at home with my wife is a really good uh, example of, and she's been great about helping me maintain balance with my friends specifically, but also family. Always, always easy to go communicate and connect with our family, but I'm often hesitant to say, all right, let's go up, you know, drive another hour and a half back to Rochelle this weekend because I want to see my friends and because I don't think that's what she wants. And, you know, just being more clear and saying what I want is way is a way easier basis to communicate with, right? And, you know, as an example, this weekend, I'm just, me and Will, our my son, are going to go out, have some time with the grandparents, hang out with my friends. She gets one-on-one time with our daughter, which is great. Yeah. So you've mentioned um, relationships a couple of times and how they're important to you, both uh, on the professional side, but also personally. And uh, you and I have talked a lot about our family backgrounds and our relationships during our one-on-one conversations. And I know that your roles as a husband and a father are very important to you. Um, How do you give your best to those 
while at the same time being the best self you can be as a company founder and leader? Yeah, I I wouldn't say that I've been great at balancing that. You know, I mean, I think um, in aggregate, I feel like I have, but you know, the having that that awareness in the moment of of when I, you know, not just the time and effort of working on the business, but the emotional energy of trying to solve the problems while you're at home and figuring out that separation. Like I, you know, I've definitely had ups and downs when it comes to that. And I think a lot of it comes out of my inability or historical inability to really understand what my capacity is. <laughs> you know, I have had an overconfidence in the amount of things that I can do. And I just, I like learning. I like digging into new things, especially in this industry. It's been, you know, I've been able to pick up things pretty quickly, but that's not a sustainable way as, a, you know, certainly a good leaders don't commit to stuff they can't, you know, follow through on. So that's been a learning lesson. So you, you just mentioned that the self-awareness part of emotional intelligence is where you have either been working on or you've recognized that you've got some more work to be done. And I'm just thrilled as heck that you have seen some growth in that. And I know that not only did you go through our program, you also went through another leadership uh, development program through one of our mentors, uh, Mark Haddis, who will probably be on, uh, on an episode real soon. What else do you do besides the obvious for your personal growth? Uh, and when I say the obvious, you know, uh, many people read books, listen to podcasts like these. Uh, but what else do you do for personal growth? And then specifically, um, what mental, emotional, and spiritual practices do you engage in on a regular basis that help fuel that growth? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I actually the optimal being program that Mark, uh, runs and I had found out about through Jim McGough, who is, uh, in, in our Junto forum, actually th those, that kind of structure and I would say skills that are brought out of that is the, the primary way that I'm uh, continuing to be more self-reflective and understanding of kind of what's best for me to operate. And so, I mean, I think one of the things that kind of touched on this, just touched on this, but I've always been really interested in learning from others, understanding others, really motivated and fulfilled by putting them in a position to succeed. Also, you know, having others be happy when I'm around, uh, also known as people pleasing. Uh, and so that, you know, in a lot of ways is it can be a really good leadership skill and relationship building skill. Like I said, I didn't really realize I, I've been learned with the downsides of that, right? And not being true to what I really believe in, not being true and really understanding what my boundaries should be uh, with relationships or people. Or, you know, I think when I take all of that into perspective, really being more introspective about, you know, not only what I'm feeling, because I've, I've had a lot, a lot of self awareness on how others perceive me, because that's once again kind of where my focus was. W wasn't always self-aware on, like I said, why I feel that way. And, you know, I think I've, I've been very fortunate to have just great parents that, uh, you know, were calm and patient. And I, I, there's, I don't have a lot of kind of traumatic things that I can point back to, to realize I'm wired in a certain way. And so that's been really trying to unravel that, you know, it takes time and it, but it is, for me, it's a big relief when you realize there's these recurring patterns that creating stress or anxiety or anxiousness or agitation that is really just 
about you know getting out of my own way. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Joe. Um, we're coming to a conclusion and uh, we'll wrap up as we always do with closing appreciations. Yeah, I, um, I I said this a hundred times throughout uh, our uh, program, but you know the timing in which we went through Junto and our maturity, um, which I guess was 2017 uh, when we started. Uh, I'm still very thankful that we got exposed and integrated into this kind of community. Um, then, you know, which is you know, two and a half years ago now. And it's really just put a lot more perspective and accelerated kind of, I think, my ability to learn and my personal growth. And yeah, just continuing to be a part of really good people. I've said this a lot, but you know, if it makes it through Raman's filter into the tribe, then, you know, it's a, it's a, one of the, the biggest compliments or I, I think things you can, you can say about someone. So I, I f- feel very appreciative to be a part of the, the Hujo tribe and maybe more specifically all of the relationships I've already built and the ones that uh, I probably will continue to build as a result of that. Also very appreciative of, yeah, having a newborn and a family that's great to come back to. And that's kind of how I started things. And being able to go home to a calm, fun, warming environment, and not only for me, but to be able to create that for our, our kids has been uh, it's been a really fun couple months since uh, our daughter came, daughter came along. I appreciate your gentleness. That is... Uh... Someone who uh, comes from, like I said, an old school industry where my experience, I've not seen much gentleness in that sector. <laughs> uh, and knowing that you have not only been able to do that in the industry, but also bring that trait to your company. And also knowing, especially hearing uh, what you've shared uh, today, uh, that you bring that home as well. And so recognizing the power and the value that that has, uh, you called it level-headedness earlier. Um, as someone who's a little bit older than you, uh, and, uh, have plenty of history of not having gentleness. <laughs> I really appreciate that. So, um, I appreciate the fact that you can bring that to both work and home. Our next guest is Brian Burkhart, founder and CEO of Square Planet Presentations and Strategy, which is in the explanation business helping their clients better explain the most important elements of their business to the most important people in their world. I could spend half an hour introducing Brian, so it's hard to know where to start and where to end, but I'll try. Brian's been a mentor at the Junto Institute since our launch in 2013, teaching our class on leadership communications, and he's left an impression on virtually everyone who has attended it over the years. I believe he's a language artist masterfully blending the right words with the perfect delivery, serving as a role model for how we can all communicate better. Whether in person or through a podcast, he has the ability to almost cast a spell on people, speaking with such conviction, passion, and charisma. His infectious energy and irreverent sense of humor help make him a dynamic presence wherever he goes. Brian is the author of a brand new book called Stand for Something, which you'll hear about and I'm confident that you'll get a taste of how he practices what he preaches. Brian, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have you here joining us on Flourishing Together. I am fully fired up. I'm in my happy place. All right. That's actually a great segue into the emotion wheel. So I'd love to have you share how it is that you're feeling right now. Uh, I am feeling so full of joy, it's just kind of hard to believe. Um, I have a really big 
series of days today, topping it off. It's as good as a feeling as I could have right now. I'm enthusiastic. I'm elated and optimistic. I'm excited. Um, I'm even feeling a bit romantic. I'm feeling very close to my wife right now. The love I have and the amount of gratitude I have for those in my world is kind of off the charts. And so these green and yellows, they almost aren't intense enough um, because my feelings are so strong right now. It is just a really, really, really good place. Boy, we could pretty much end the podcast right here. Let's do. <laughs> Day drinking, anyone? That's <laughs> uh, hard to follow up with. Um, well, I, I appreciate everything that you just shared. And uh, in some similar ways, I'm feeling a lot of joy and love right now, um, a lot of tranquility, peace. And I'm also quite jubilant because I'm really excited for you. Well, thanks. And uh, for what's happening right now in your life and career. Uh, and I'm really excited to celebrate with you this evening. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, but uh, let's begin with the first recollection that you have of leadership. It's a heck of a question. And anyone that knows me knows that I've talked about this at length for a long time. I've said for a long time that leadership and communications go hand in hand. Leaders must communicate. And those that can communicate well are often thrust into a position of leadership. And so the first recollection I have is when I was in fifth grade at Oak Ridge Elementary School, I was running for student council president, which would have happened then my sixth grade year. And so it was with my best friend. His name was uh, Jim Leonard, still one of my close friends. He was going to be the VP. I was running for president. And I, like I am now, have suffered from a case of uh, you know vertical challenges my entire life. Not a tall person, right? And I can remember being in front of the entire school. We were giving speeches, and I was going to be the speech maker on behalf of Jim and I. And I walk up to the lectern. Yes, it's called the lectern, not a podium. I walked up to the lectern, and it had a gooseneck microphone. And I pulled that microphone all the way down as far as it would go to much laughter amongst the school. And I can remember starting my speech. And that was the first time I thought, oh, oh, I kind of like this. There was a certain level of power. I was able to influence the audience and I had a feedback loop that I found powerful and, in, and joyful and a variety of things at the time. And I was very mindful at a very young age of that power. And that was, I know it sounds a little twisted, but that was the first time that it struck me that you could lead. And it, in my case, wasn't leading athletically or academically. It was leading through the ability to communicate. And so that was something that stuck with me. And I remember um, really from that moment forward, I was always president or captain or whatever of everything, always. And it was always because I spoke. And so that moment, that was the first time that I was able to put two and two together about those worlds uniting in a very powerful way. So this is really fascinating. I have never before drawn the connection, and it's kind of reactive and impulsive here, but let's keep talking about this because I have a sense of where you might stand on this. What's the connection between speaking, in parentheses, up, speaking, possibly up, and leadership in your head? Huge. As you can imagine, I'm a guy who you know has very loud notions of things like fortune favoring the bold. And I tell the story of Mahatma Gandhi, 
a small little man who stood in front of the entire Indian subcontinent and said, we deserve our freedom and stood up to the British empire, the largest military rule at the time. That's standing up and speaking up and leading. And it takes often that ability. That's why I say it. The leaders of the world and business must communicate and those that can communicate really well often lead. Um, I think the correlation is one-to-one. It's absolutely, absolutely real. Yeah. And it's not that it requires someone who speaks a lot. In Gandhi's case, he didn't speak much. Right. Right. It's just this whole idea of speaking. Right. And especially as it relates to the title of your book, which we're going to get to, um, I think there's a direct correlation to leadership in a lot of ways, regardless of how we define leadership. So thank you for that, because I'm gonna I'm gonna give this some thought. I'm fascinated by that idea. It's never ever crossed my mind before. I'll give you one other thought to consider that sometimes you can speak without saying a word. Uh you have a book coming out. I wrote a book, Raman. And it's real. Um, it happened. We're having this conversation the morning of your book launch party. Yes. Uh, which happens to be in Chicago, where you're from, but no longer a resident of. I have pulled um, the plug on the frozen tundra. I'm out. And we'll get to that in a minute as well. And so I imagine you've been and are feeling a range of emotions. You've shared a little bit already about how you're feeling right now. But let's get specific here about this whole period of your life where you have written a book. It's now been published. It's about to be made available on Amazon next week, if I recall correctly. You are correct. So just talk about the range of emotions that you're feeling, have been feeling, and what's been driving those feelings. I will work in no particular order here, but I'll give you a couple little bits. First and foremost, I know that this event we're doing tonight to launch this book, that 10 states of our union will be represented. That means a whole bunch of people have taken time, money, effort to get out of their houses and, and come be a part of something that I asked them to be a part of. And they're doing that for me. One of those states is, of course, Illinois. And so there's a whole truckload of people like you who are going to fight traffic and parking or expense to do things like grab a cab. None of it's convenient or easy. And the RSVP list continues to swell in a way that I've had to call a caterer a couple times and say, add more booze and food. That's an incredible thing. The gratitude that I feel is just off the charts that people are saying, Brian, you matter. And so I want to come celebrate this with you. That's pretty spectacular. Um, And that's just the tip of the iceberg. This has been an interesting year. 2019 has been one heck of a year for both me personally, but certainly my businesses. Um, My two companies that I spend the majority of my time on have had record years. We did more revenue business, if you will, the top line revenue by April 15th of 2019 than I had done in all of 2018. And 2018 had been a record year. And so it has been go time. And oh, by the way, in the middle of that, um, write a book, really refine a relatively new staff based in Phoenix now. And so it's been one of those things that it has been a lot. And so to get to this place right now where uh, I, I know it's a podcast, people can't see it, but I'm in shorts and a t-shirt, unshaven, feeling easy breezy, feeling good about all the stuff that's happening. Boy, that's saying something. It's been it's been a bit of a journey. If we look at the emotion wheel, we've got categories in there like anger and sadness and fear. Talk a little bit about what you've felt in those areas as it relates to this whole book thing. I'll talk about fear first. 
my wife brought up at some point relatively recently within the last 30 days about how it was brave for me to do this. I said, brave? This wasn't brave. This was easy. And she sort of pushed back and said, what do you mean it was easy? And I said, the, the, the notion of writing down the stuff that I stand for, the things that I believe and asking the world to judge me, I have zero fear around that. None. My fear around this whole thing, believe it or not, it sounds so ridiculous, is that somehow, some way, I actually harm somebody, that they don't fully understand what it is that I'm asking people to do, and that that turns into something negative. And so it's a really strange thing that when you write your own thoughts and ideas, the stuff that I breathe every day, put it in a book and say, okay, world, go read it, they're is the opportunity for there to be harm down the line. The way I would describe that is at no point did Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers, ever consider the notion that what they would build would lead to a horrific plane crash. They just wanted to learn how to fly. And so for me, I, I just don't want to do harm because of the things that I write. So my fear around writing a book is odd. Um, the notion of, of doing all that has been a lot of fun, actually. And so on the emotion wheel, you know, some of the stuff that's been on there. It's been kind of an exciting journey. I can tell you this, I'm going to be way better the second time around. And so just for the benefit of everybody else, um, a couple of years ago, Brian took the bold step of moving not only his family, but also his entire business from Chicago to Phoenix. And uh, the company move uh, didn't come without its challenges and its low points. Um, and, and I'm emphasizing that because so much of what we talk about in Junto uh, and on this podcast has to do with leadership. So um, what I'd love to hear from you is now that it's hopefully in the rearview mirror, you know, well in the rearview mirror, and you've got that, that ability for hindsight, what'd you learn from that experience and how has it influenced you as a leader? Uh, this is going to sound ever so political. And by that, I mean, as in politics, but I think the point is a poignant one. I would ask the world to be incredibly afraid be very, very afraid of the fact that the current administration has had so much turnover. I mean, all the things that are said, who cares? It's just bombastic nonsense. But the constant churn of people in high places is catastrophic. What I've learned with my organization is that when we lost people through this move, you don't just lose human beings, you lose experience and memory and connectivity with clients and vendors and all of those little nuanced details that make a company go. I think the value that I placed on my people in Chicago was very high. It's higher in retrospect. You look back and go, oh, damn, that person was pretty great. And I think um, I've done a decent job of telling all of those things to all of those people. Uh, certain degrees of love, gratitude, appreciation, you name it. But that transition to get new people up to speed has been something. And so as a leader, what I've realized is that I've had to really lean into my core beliefs, the things that our company is all about, and then teach those things. And quite literally from the ground up. Um, I mean, I even have, it sounds ridiculous, but if I opened up my laptop on my desktop, I mean, not even buried in a folder on a Google Drive, but I mean like on the desktop is a folder of a presentation that says Square Planet Day One. Because everyone that comes in to work for me now, I personally sit down and it takes hours. I walk them through all this stuff because it matters so much. That level of experience being gone, whew, it was a big deal. Was it 100% turnover? Oh yeah. 
And so we, we kept one person who's actually still in Chicago. And so she works remote. Otherwise it was hundred percent turnover. So knowing hopefully, right? Knock on wood here, uh, that you're not going to have hundred percent turnover yeah. again. And you're not going to take these people for granted, of course. Right. How is this shaping you now? Like what's the present state of Brian as leader? I think you would appreciate this as a guy who teaches the things you teach. Is, and I mean, it's stuff I knew and discussed, but just didn't do very well. Um, we've talked about over and over and over again now with my Phoenix team about repeatable processes. Even things like, it's going to sound silly, but stuff like we've got three designers on staff and our lead designer is this incredibly great guy named Tim. He's awesome, Tim Eisenbrandt. And I, I have given Tim a task. It's top 10 things that make a successful designer at Square Planet. And those seem like almost trivial little uh, jobs on his to-do list. But consider the notion that if a new designer comes on staff, we now have a thing besides onboarding with me, besides things like our employee manual, besides all the typical, typical, we now have a little cheat sheet, if you will, that has been built over time when we are not in transition, when we are not scrambling to fill the role, but thought through in a way of, okay, if we're going to drop a body in here, what are the things that they need to succeed? And so those sort of thoughts are now really permeating everything I do of, okay, how do we build this for long-term sustainability to transfer this knowledge in a really easy way that people understand that's clearly codified what we're all about, our beliefs and the way we attack things and building that systemically, specifically, uh, smartly. That's where my brain is and it's real. All right, let's get to the fun stuff. So Brian's new book is called Stand for Something, and it has been- The Power of Building a Brand People Authentically Love. It's a long title. It is. Why is this one book that not just leaders, but everyone should read this year? Uh, it's a great question, of course. I would tell you that I think there's a, a, a chunk at the very end of this book that talks about living a congruent, authentic existence. And I think the way I would- best explain that is I get this a lot. I get asked often to stand on a stage at a large conference and speak in front of people, which I enjoy very much. And when I speak about core beliefs, I can look out into the audience and I can see, there's always a handful of people that I can see the weepiness in their eyes. They start to get just a touch emotional. And I'm realizing as I'm speaking that it's happening, like I see it going on. Those folks that are being touched in that very deep emotional way are having a revelatory moment that they realize that the place they work and they as human beings themselves are not congruent. They are incongruent. They believe different things. They're at odds. And so they typically wait for me at the end and they kind of get in a little line and they are always at the end. And I can see their eyes swelling up as we get close. And I typically say something along the lines of, well, you know what to do. It's time to work on your CV, resume, whatever. And that's a really, really hard things for, for people to hear sometimes. The reason people should read this book is because life is too long to get it wrong. You only get one. And even if you're a founder, even if you're someone who's created something and it mirrors you as a human being, you need to know what it is you're all about. You need to know what it is you stand for. And the reason I'm so passionate about this is because this is rooted, deep, real science. It's called cognitive psychology theory. It tells us that what we believe leads to our actions. If you believe that cheese is this horrible, awful, nasty stuff, 
you are not going to go eat a cheeseburger or go have pizza loaded in cheese. You're going to find an alternate. You're going to do something different. Your beliefs lead to your actions. If you believe your body is your temple, you're going to find a way to work out on a regular basis and not eat a bunch of garbage. Beliefs lead to actions. If you don't know what you believe, how can you know what to do? How can you know where to work, who to date, how to spend your time, where to put your focus and attention? You need to know. And I am convinced because I've been at this a long time now. The vast majority of both individuals and organizations don't have a clue. They never take the time. They never stop and go, huh, what do I actually believe? And when people do, it can just absolutely transform their world. And I've you know, been lucky enough to be a part of that for a lot of people. It's big, it's powerful, it's real, and it's something that everyone can benefit from. So one thing that you said struck me, life is too long yeah. to get it wrong. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, life is too long. We always hear the life is too short. Yes. Unravel that for me. It's my amazing wife. My wife is a psychotherapist and an executive coach, which makes it interesting at home from time to time, uh, often, like every day. And um, she has said some things that have really kicked me right in the face. And that was one that I said, oh, I'm going to steal that. I'll give you credit, hon. But yeah, that, that's my wife. And I think she's right. If you really look at it from the standpoint of um, we talked about it before we started recording that we're never going to stop. You know, we may not necessarily do work for money, but we're not going to stop living and doing our thing. And there are so many people that when you look, it, it just becomes Groundhog Day. It's this mundane repeat, repeat, repeat with a purposeless sort of casual way. And for me, that is just fully unacceptable. I find that to just be caustic, awful. It's not anything that I would wish on my worst enemy. I want people to be able to be uh, fully expressed, to be fully authentic, to live their best life. And for me, which if when you look at it, life is too long to just go through the motions. So for me, that whole notion of knowing what you stand for and living purposefully, that's a big deal. Okay, Brian, one of the things that I want to ask you is uh, about eating your own proverbial dog food. Tell us a couple of stories of how you have been bold and how that philosophy has served you well. I have a number of examples. Some are a little bit more ridiculous. Some perhaps a bit more focused on the Junto audience. I'll give you a ridiculous one first. So this was now a million years ago. I was 20 at the time. And Walt Disney World down in Florida was looking to fill all the different job roles that exist in a place of that enormity. And they had long since tapped out of the central Florida market. They had to import talent. And they realized that they could put together a thing called the college program, housing on site, give people jobs, give them some college credit. And what they didn't anticipate was the demand. It ended up being one of these things that uh, at least they were, they told us this, I'm not sure if it's true, that the odds of getting a job at Disney in the college program were smaller than being elected to the uh, U.S. Congress or something of that line. And so I can remember being an a undergrad student and I went to this group interview. I walked into a room in my little suit and tie as a 20-year-old, expecting a one-on-one -on -one like we're having, but was confronted with a table of 10 people and an empty spot where the interviewer was going to go. And I was kind of dead center, right? And so they were going around doing this group interview and I could tell that all these people were good happy, shiny, perfect Disney people. 
And that if the odds were, as they said, it just wouldn't cut the mustard. You had to do something. And so it got to me, and I have not a clue where this came from, but I got out of my seat and I said something along the lines of, her name was Leslie. Leslie, you will uh, look around the room and see lots of qualified people, but you will never forget this. And I proceeded to do a headstand. I could not do a handstand. I did a headstand, kicked my leg up against the, the wall, did a headstand, and I sang the Mickey Mouse song, M-I-C-K-E-Y, M-O-U, you know, you know the song. I got the job on the spot. What I didn't realize was that was going to be a first of three. They would eventually have you go down the line if you were qualified. But right then and there, in front of all these people, she goes, that's it. Job's yours. Wait for me afterwards. We'll put you directly into attractions. And so by being bold, by doing something that stood out from the crowd, I was able to secure a really tough, coveted position immediately. Now, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't necessarily do that now as an adult, although I, maybe I would. I want to hear how your being bold or this idea of standing for something has also served you in a leadership capacity, right? Because in each of those examples, one of them was for you. It was for you getting a job. Another one was for the company. Now kind of get a little bit more specific to your role as the CEO and founder of Square Planet. I very much appreciate that because uh, if you just listen to those other parts, it sounds like my philosophy is be obnoxious and good things will happen. And that's just not it at all. Really what my book is about and what my um, talk track has been for a long time is this notion of creating a filter. When you have these core beliefs that are really well codified, codified and you've really internalized what it means, it does give you the ability to, to, to know exactly what to do. And as a leader, I think when I, when I really look at it, the parts um, that make me know I'm on the right track is when I see my teammates, my, my, my associates, if you will, doing exactly what I would want them to do without telling them. And that comes in a lot of ways from first and foremost, knowing what it is that I stand for, translating it into what the company stands for, and then teaching that down the line. And so I, I think as much as anything, where leadership has really, uh, my leadership has really improved by using beliefs. It's by hiring the right people, by creating boundaries with clients. Um, I mean, I shot an email out yesterday while I was on the plane that was to a brand new opportunity, people I have not yet met. And I basically said, this is exactly what I expect from you. You need to do your part. When there is a deadline, you need to be part of the deadline. When there is payment due, we need to be paid. When you, I mean, it was it, that, that's something, right? To be that strong in an email with people I've never met. But that boundary setting, that comes from understanding what it is we're all about and how we do things. And one of the things we said on there too uh, was have fun, that the stuff we do is cool. This is going to be fun. And so you have to bring that playful too. Um, knowing all of that really has served me well as a leader. It, is, it has helped build an organization that runs well with really good people who can self-select. I mean, if you're not a good fit, you know when you read the job posting, you, you know not to apply. That's leadership in my mind. Uh, well, Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. And uh, as We're we, done already? As, That's it? As we, I'm just getting warmed up. Go ahead. Really? Go ahead. Wow. No, you go. It's your no, podcast. You, no, I don't want to no, hijack you've got, you. You've got free reign here. Really? Yeah. Go. Um, I will tell you two things. Um, my book features two junto-centric stories. One of them is about you. Oh, yes. Yes, you are acknowledged in the acknowledgments. That's just your name. But there's a whole ramen chapter chunk thing part 
And so I would tell people, buy my book just so you can read that. But then two, uh, Tiesta T is in there as well. And so I use the combination of your core beliefs about how you built Junto, as well as Tiesta's be- belief about uh, being loose. And those are cool case studies that I have in my book that I, I hope people read just so they can get a little more Junto love. And ironically, um, we were talking about this too. I just can't tell you how much Junto has meant to me from a very personal level. The the word love very much exists on the wheel here, but um, it's not used enough, I don't think. I, I honestly believe it's one of those things that we just are somehow, some way afraid of saying a word that is one of the best things in the world, right? And so I've got some people that are because of Junto. I would not have known these people if it wasn't for Junto that I love. And that's something. That's That's big. Thank you. I'm really touched by that. Appreciate that. So let's move into closing appreciations. Yes. So this is something that we do um, at the conclusion of most of our Junto sessions. And I know in your case, you have been an instructor for us for many years. Um, in those sessions, we don't necessarily do it, but through the forum, the mentoring sessions, our tutoring sessions, we finish off with a round of appreciations. I appreciate your gravitas. And I'm not saying that in the traditional sense whereby you are someone who is placed on a pedestal and you wield power and influence um, in that regard. I'm saying it as I was trying to think of a word or two that captures who and what Brian Burkhart is. Most people say loud. (laughs) And that's part of it. But you're able to get away with it because there's something sincere behind it. And then more importantly, you back it up also. By delivering, as opposed to just being loud. What I'm getting at is, in particular, it's the gravitas that you have with language and words. And I trust that for people who've listened to this piece, they've not only been able to hear the selection of words, but also the way in which they were delivered. And those to me are an extremely, that combination is extraordinarily unique. Well, that is about as nice as something as, uh, that's ever been said about me. I appreciate that. It's very sweet of you. Um, I have appreciations on a myriad of levels right now. It's really kind of amazing. I, I've been so focused on reminding myself about gratitude and empathy. It's been something that's really been part of my daily uh, morning routine, actually. And um, actually, one of my favorite people on the planet, Vimal, another Junto guy, he and I have talked about this at length. I love him, by the way. Gratitude and empathy. I have both at such a high degree of of craziness right now. I mean, it's just amazing how much I I can't avoid this. But my appreciation really, I think right now is for uh, relationships. It's honestly guys like you, guys like Vimal and the Dysons and Tiestas and all these people, uh, the Paul Fehrenbachers, all of those connections, man, you could take away all my stuff right now. You know, I don't care. Take it. It's just stuff. But don't take away those relationships. Don't take away those experiences. The appreciation I have for that, it's real. Mic drop. Thank you. Thank you. No matter how many times I've heard Brian talk about our beliefs and the importance of articulating them, I never seem to get enough. Each time I hear it, I dedicate myself to doing it more than I always have. As a young professional, I had no qualms about sharing my convictions and standing up for what I believed. Today, 
I try to do it as much as I possibly can, but I do it in a very different way. In between, though, I found, like many people, the challenge of finding the right balance between doing what I believed in, saying it, and then following it on a day-to-day basis. About 10 years ago, it was the first and only time that I can remember that someone called me out on my beliefs. Not in a way where they disagreed with them. Like most people, that's happened to me a lot. And actually, when people disagree with me and provide the rationale, it does nothing except help me build respect for them. But in this case, it was different. At the time, I was working for a large university here in Chicago. I had a colleague, a very bright and esteemed professor, who knew that he was bright and esteemed and had no trouble talking about it. We were friendly colleagues, but not necessarily friends outside of the office. Both of us were deeply passionate about a lot of things, agreeing on some and disagreeing on many. And through many of those conversations, he knew that I was someone who had deep convictions and followed what I believed. One day, he walked into my office to ask if I'd nominate him for a local business award. I thought about it for a moment and then explained that I believed in nominating people for such awards on my own accord, not in response to a request. He took slight offense to that and with some passion and a rising voice, lectured me that sometimes people like me have to put aside their principles. At that point, little did he know that he destroyed virtually any chance at ever gaining my advocacy for anything. It wasn't only because he was asking me to do something I didn't believe in. It was because he obviously believed that one's principles and values, the elements of our integrity, the foundation of our humanity, that they were sacrificial for something as trivial as an award. That day, I made a decision that I would remain cordial and professional with this colleague, but nothing more. There would be no relationship beyond that. That day, not only did I stand for something, I also stood up for myself. And in reflecting on that story, I can't help but think about someone like Joe Rice, who was so open about his tendency to be a people pleaser. Would someone like him have given in to my colleague's request? How do people-pleasers react when faced with going against their principles and values? On the other hand, how do those of us who are not people-pleasers find the delicate balance between standing up for what we believe, yet being generous with and to others? These things are not mutually exclusive, but they sure do provide some food for thought to me. Because in effect, what we're talking about is that there's a difference between standing for something and standing up for yourself. Both of them are core to our humanity and to our integrity. Brian Burkhart believes that we can live a congruent, authentic existence by sharing our beliefs with others. I agree. As human beings and as business people, we must stand for something. But I also believe that when we do stand for something, we must also stand up for ourselves. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.